Is it working? It's working. Praise be. Amen. God is good. How does this thing go back in here? I have no idea. This is exactly what I imagined would happen whenever I get to preach. Uh, all right, hard cut for the recording and all the other things, right? No, I'm just kidding. Hey, welcome to the Oaks Church. We are imperfect, but we are here, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. We are going to be continuing in our Psalm series, a series that, to be quite frank, uh, I haven't been here for. I've been gone for the last month, and let me just tell you, it's so good to see all of you. I was doing some calculating. June 10th through July 11th, I was in Cincinnati for a total of five days. Um, so we went to the Southern Baptist Convention. We took a vacation with our family that was amazing down in Florida, came back for a few days, and then uh, myself and six others from this church went to support our uh, church planting team in London, and we were there for 11 days, and that was great. And now I feel like I'm back, and, but I just haven't seen you guys in forever, and so it's so good to see you, and it's so good to be here. Uh, we've been to a lot of places, a lot of fun places the last few uh, weeks. Let me tell you, there's just nothing like this church. Um, and I'm, I know I'm biased. I know I'm one of the pastors here, so I, you might not really listen to me when I say this, but there's just something special about the Oaks. God's doing something, and it has nothing to do with me, it has nothing to do with the elders, you know, it has everything to do with you. And that's what the church ultimately is. It's not a building or a place, it's a people. And there's something special that God is at work in each and every one of you. And so I'm thankful to be here. It is better to be here than any other place this morning, as T.L. mentioned. And so I'm grateful to be opening God's word with you uh, to one of my favorite psalms, a psalm that has spoken to me in many different times of life. And I pray that we'll speak to you this morning. And so I do want to begin with a word of prayer um, and go to the Lord and ask him to bless our time to open our hearts to hear from his word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray right now that you would tear down the walls in people's hearts, that you would open their hearts so that they might see and behold wonderful things from your law that you tell us in Psalm 119. Lord, that we would open our eyes to see the beauty and majesty of the Lord. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit so that I might preach Christ and so that I might preach your word faithfully. And Lord, I pray that you would come into this room and that you would allow people to hear so that their lives might change, so that their minds and so that their affections and so that their wills would be forever changed right now in this moment. Lord, please speak to us through your word so that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 84 if you're not there. We're going to continue our summer series in the Psalms. And this book uh, that we have before us is just a collection of poetry, most of which would have been put to music uh, and sung in various settings. God in his infinite wisdom has created music. I mean, have you ever thought about that? That we have music. Music is a good thing. That feeling that we get when our favorite artist puts out that new single or has a new album coming out, just, you're excited for it. And, you know, God even designed our bodies to be changed by music. Researchers at Johns Hopkins say that music can vastly improve your memory. That's why if you want to memorize something, put it to music, and you will more than likely memorize it very well. But music impacts us physically, emotionally, spiritually. If you challenge yourself to listen to new music, which this is an interesting statistic. If you challenge yourself to listen to new music after like your late 20s, and 
Those of us who are in our late 20s, maybe just out of our late 20s, early 30s, it's tough to listen to new music. Uh, we're beginning to become old people who just are set in our ways. But if you can listen to new music, it actually unlocks different parts of your brain so that your brain has to process new data, new information, and it does something. And like God has made us in his image and has created our brains to operate that way, that music would do that to our brains. Harvard Medical School wrote an article describing how music is one of the few things in this world that activates several parts of our brain all at one time. You've got your auditory cortex to the memory in your brain to the part that controls our emotions. Those things are all activated. Like when you hear that song and that just sort of little skip in your heart, you, we've all felt that, right? Music is a special thing, and God has designed us to love music. And I think that's part of the reasons why we have 150 psalms, things that would have been sung telling us about God and his glory and his majesty. My wife and I love music. Caitlin grew up singing in choirs and singing solos. I did not grow up singing as much as like playing instruments. You wouldn't want to hear me sing. But one of our favorite things to do in the car uh, not anywhere near people for my sake, is to just belt out our favorite songs. We just went on family vacation, and, you know, we were singing our favorite songs. Our kids are in the back. We're teaching them those songs. We found out that my nearly two-year-old daughter, Savannah, is a tremendous fan of metal and screamo music, which is just a strange thing. Strange thing for a two-year-old, although if you know Savannah, it matches her general temperament of just screaming all the time. So pray for us. Please pray for us. You know, over the next couple months, Caitlin and I are actually going to be going to some concerts, and uh, we're going to see Yellow Card and Mayday Parade. We're going to see Need to Breathe and Judah and the Lion with Drew and Sydney. That's going to be a great time. And I bet on the way there, we're going to be singing those songs. We're going to pick out our favorite songs from those people. You guys have done this, right? Where you're like going to hear these people perform live, and you're like, I'm listening to them on the way. It's like pre-gaming to get there, and then you hear it live, and you're like, this is amazing. It's a wonderful experience, and God has created us to enjoy that, and it's a good thing. Now, I don't have the melody, and I don't have the arrangement for Psalm 84, but what we know is that this psalm would have been sung by Israelites who were on their way to the temple. That's what we know. And of course, they would sing at the temple once they got here. That's one of the things they would do at the temple, is they'd get to the temple, and then they would, of course, sing some more. But they actually had a song that they would be singing on the way to the temple, much like if we're going to our favorite concert, and we're going to be singing those same songs, we've got a song to sing on the way because they're so excited. And that's what this psalm is all about. They're on the way to the temple, and they're so excited to be at the temple that they have a song about going to the temple. And now... Our application from this text, sadly, will not, our primary application, might I say, sadly will not be that we need to, like, pre-game church service with, like, our favorite Maverick City song or our favorite City of Light song on the way here. That's not the primary application, though I would say, do that. That's great. If you're on the way to church on Sunday morning, like, put on your favorite song and prepare your heart to be here. That's a good thing. But that's not our primary application this morning. Instead, we're going to look at the heart behind this psalm. We're going to see the message behind the music. And we don't know the melody and we don't know the tune for this song, but we sure do know the lyrics. And these lyrics teach us something. And what it teaches us matters in your life right now here in Cincinnati in 2023. It matters. Songs that were written thousands of years ago matter for you today. They're going to teach us that the presence of God 
It's better than anything that the world has to offer. It's going to teach us things that we've maybe heard before, that a day in God's courts is better than a thousand days anywhere else. But even more deeply, what I want us to see toward the end of this sermon is that this psalm teaches us something very specific about the character of God. And knowing more about God's character is going to help us to run after his presence even more. And that's my hope and my aim in this sermon, is that we would see God's character, that we would see the Lord, we'd see the lyrics of this beautiful psalm, and that it would cause us to want to just run after the Lord with everything that we have. So if you boiled this psalm down to just a sentence, you might summarize it like this. There is nothing better than dwelling in the presence of God, walking in His ways, and trusting Him as a good Father. It's a lot in there. We're going to unpack all of that, but that's a, a good summary here. There's nothing better than dwelling in the presence of God, walking in His ways, and trusting Him as a good Father. Now, if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 84, you can see just by looking at it that this psalm's divided into three sections. I don't know where it is in your Bible, but it's more than likely off to the right-hand side of the column. You might see that word selah in the, in the margin. And that marks off our psalm into really just three sections. I, I feel like most sermons I preach have three points. It's right there in the text, so I've got an excuse this week. There's three right there, so we're going to divide this into three sections. But as we look at these three sections, two big doctrinal truths I want you to look at in these three sections. The first is God's presence and God's plan is better than anything in this world. God's presence and God's plan is better than anything else in this world. And secondly, God's presence is so great because his character is perfect. Those are the two things that the psalmist is sort of moving forward as we go through the three sections of this psalm. So I want us to see these truths right in our text. So would you read with me Psalm 84, beginning in verse 1, going all the way to the end of the text. Let's read together. To the choir master... According to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it to a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and shield. 
The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The first of three points today is this. On the road of life, it is better to be in the presence of God than in the presence of the world. Very simply, it's better to be in the presence of God than in the presence of the world. You see that right there in verses 1 through 4. Throughout these first, four, uh, these first four verses, the temple is mentioned uh, a number of times, once in each verse. There, look in your Bibles once you've finished writing down that first point. Look in your Bibles. There in verse 1, we read of the Lord's dwelling place. Then in verse 2, you see it, the courts of the Lord. Look in verse 3, your altars. Verse 4, your house. So this, these first four verses are talking about the temple, this place where God is. And throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Psalms, the temple is not just a physical place where God is, where God's presence resides on earth, but the temple is also symbolic of God's presence itself. And so in a Psalm like this, the continual mention of the temple, the continual mention of God's courts should make us think of the presence of God. And as you read through the Psalms on your own, this is sort of what, how you should try and read the Psalms. You, know, you don't need me to interpret them. You don't need other pastors to interpret them. You can read this, understand it on your own, and a part of preaching is teaching you how to do that. But you see those words repeated, and that repetition should sort of make you think, like, what, what's going on here? And it's pointing us to God's presence. You might read it like this, how lovely is your presence. My soul longs, yes, faints for the presence of the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your presence. You see, the takeaway here is that the presence of the Lord is, is better than anything else in the world. We read that from the beginning of the psalm all the way to the end of the psalm. Now, if you grew up in the church like me in the mid-90s, early 2000s, you might recognize this psalm from a song. In 1995, I was so young in 1995, don't think I'm too old, but in 1995, Matt Redman wrote the song, Better Is One Day, where he essentially put this psalm to music. And I'm telling you, back in youth group days in the late 90s, early 2000s, the song was a, was a hit. I mean, it was an absolute fire. I mean, people loved it. And we sang it, we probably oversang it so that you, you might not have heard it in quite some time today. Like, we, we don't sing it anymore, it seems. Um, but the first verse of that song goes like this. It says, how lovely, I'm not going to sing it, I'm going to say it, okay? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. All right, it checks out right there in verse 1. For my soul longs and even faints for you. You guys hear the tune in your head, right? But then verse 3, he deviates from the text of Psalm 84, and it almost just operates as a summary. And that third stanza, he says, For here my heart is satisfied within your presence. And that's not in the psalm, but I think Matt Redman got it right here. I think that is what the psalmist is trying to say. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, my, my soul longs, even faints for you and your courts. Why? Because that is where my heart is satisfied. That's where I experience 
true satisfaction, true joy? Do you want true meaning in life? Do you want to find your real purpose in this world? Well, it's only able to be found in the presence of the one who made you, of the one who designed you. You think about it. The tabernacle, the temple, any, any dwelling place of God is lovely, not because of its amazing architecture, not because of the comfort of the furnishings found in the building, not because of its excellent facilities. No, the temple was great because that's where God was. When we read the Old Testament, the temple is good, the tabernacle is good. Those things are lovely. Those things are spoken of in this psalm as lovely because that's where God is. So for us today, we know that the presence of God is the thing that we ought to be seeking more than anything else in this world. You see, the psalmist concludes this section saying, those who dwell in the house of God, those who dwell in the presence of God, they're blessed. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, I just returned from London this past week. We were there working alongside one of the church plants that we support, and it was a long trip, 11 days, but man, it was a great trip. Uh, you should find some of the people who went and ask them about it. But by the end of that trip, some of us were longing for some of the comforts that we have here in the great United States of America, okay? I know that Hunter is probably one of the most blameless and holy elders, but even he, even Hunter, said, I'm missing a little bit of the things from America. I'm missing my black coffee. Not the filtered, like, pour in the cup and stir it black coffee, but my black coffee. And I'm like, okay, I hear you, man. But one of the things that our team as a whole missed the most, and if you know me, you know how much my heart was longing for this, is we missed air conditioning, okay? Europe only halfway believes in air conditioning. If you've been there, you know. Um, one of the places that didn't believe in air conditioning on our trip was the Airbnb that we were staying at, which was unfortunate. And so for 10 nights, now, and don't, don't let me be too dramatic here, okay? It wasn't that bad. It was very temperate. It was in the 50s most mornings, in the 70s in the afternoons. It was great. There were some days that was in the 80s, high 80s, and those were tough days. Really, really suffering for Jesus, okay? I mean, for me, that, I'm not built different, okay? And so... But we would have to sleep with our windows open just to get maybe a cool draft, and you would just sort of lay there like, I'm sweating in my bed. Uh, and so by the end of that trip, I, I talked to Paul about it, and Paul was like, I am ready for air conditioning. So I remember coming home, and I missed my family. I missed everyone, but oh, did I miss air conditioning. Uh, it was wonderful. I, I told Kate, I'm like, hey, babe, tonight we're cranking it down to 66 in this house and we are just going to freeze. And I did exactly that, and it was glorious. And I, I had the sense of longing for air conditioning. I had the sense of longing for the comforts that I'm so used to. And we long for a lot of different things in this life, and certainly we are all accustomed to various comforts, certain things that make our lives easier. But of all the things that you desire, of all the things that you find yourself longing for, maybe in that small moment where it's just you and you're just thinking, you're alone with your thoughts, and you find yourself desiring something, longing for something in this life, do you long for the presence of God? Is there ever a moment where you, believer, where you're sitting there and you just say, I want more of his presence? I want more of God. I know that there's more to be had. I want to take this thing more seriously. 
I want to grow deeper with the Lord. I want to feel His presence. I'm not going to experience it fully until heaven. I know that. But I want more of it right now. Do you find yourself saying that? I fear that far too often, too many of us are longing for the comforts of this world rather than the comfort that we find in the very presence of God. You see, God's presence is better than anything that this world has to offer you. And I understand that that's a big statement to make. Because this world seems like it has an awful lot to offer. Lucrative career opportunities, money, fame, power. The world can offer immorality and acceptance of evil, traveling, drugs, alcohol, ways to remove your inhibitions, ways to forget your sorrows, and to just take in the world. And when I think of that, I think of the prodigal son. I think of the prodigal son and how he received his inheritance from his father so that he could go and chase the things of this world. And what happened? We know the story. He ended up in a a pig pen, regretting everything that he had done. David, the author of so many of our psalms, we think of his life story. We think of how David had it all. He had so many things. He had done so many things. He had power. He had military success. He had fame. He committed adultery. He murdered. He did very sinful things. He had worldly things in his life. He had all of these things. So if you're sitting here wondering and and saying to yourself, is is this really true, this idea that God's presence is better than anything this world has to offer? We see examples of this all around, that you can have everything the world has to offer and still feel completely empty. Why? Why is that so? Because you were made by God. You are not in and of yourself a self-sufficient being. You were created by someone for something. Do you know that? And that has a massive impact on your life right now on a Sunday morning. We're trying to teach these things to our children. One of the best ways to teach kids is through memorization and catechisms. And, you know, we're trying to teach, you know, Judah knows this now. We're moving on to Olivia and eventually Savannah. But the first question of the Westminster Catechism says this. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is man's greatest purpose? And Judah knows this by heart now. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And if you're here this morning, listen to me. That's what you were made for. Your chief purpose in life is not your career, It's not your sense of calling to do something in this world. Your chief end is to glorify the one who made you and to enjoy him forever. I love that word. You get to enjoy. You were made to enjoy God. God wants us to enjoy him. But how many of us are focused on that? How many of us spend our time seeking to enjoy the things of this world rather than enjoying God? There's a lot of things to enjoy in this life. There's a lot of things that are good things. But when we enjoy them too much, they become God things, and that becomes idolatry. You can enjoy your family too much. You can enjoy your work too much. But you can also use your family for the glory of God. You can use your career and your job for the glory of God. And that's what we're intended to do, is to get this ordering correct. 
And so if you're seeking the presence of God, you understand this. But if you're not seeking the presence of God this morning, let me just say, if you feel empty, if you're seeking the world instead of God, and you feel that sense of emptiness in your heart, so whenever you've achieved whatever you set out to do, and it feels hollow, there's a reason for that. It's because God did not ultimately make you for that. God made you for himself to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's what you're made for. So you say, okay, I get it. How do I seek the presence of God? What does that look like? Well, you know, I've been in seminary for a long time. I I went to seminary for a master's degree. I'm working on a doctorate degree. But let me tell you, you, you don't need any of those things to know how to seek the presence of God And sometimes I think it's silly that I'm going through all this school because this is like 90% of what I tell people. How do I seek the presence of God? How do I? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. And so many of you may just tune me out right there. Okay, I've heard that before. I've heard that at Young Life. I've heard that at youth group. I've heard that growing up. I've heard that in church. I get it. But are you doing it? Do you feel empty and you're not reading your Bible? Well, try it. Try reading your Bible. Read your Bible in community with other people so they can help you to read your Bible and help you to be accountable. Terry, leads, Terry Lee leads a Bible study on Wednesday mornings. Go to that. I lead a Bible study on Friday mornings. There's other Bible studies that are going on throughout this church because we love the Bible. You want to hear from the Lord? So many of us just, I want to hear from God. I want to hear audibly His voice. Just read the Bible out loud because that's what the Bible is. It's God's Word for you. We cannot stress the importance of God's Word. And it might sound like overly simple, and it's like, man, you have all that education. Yes, that's the application, because that's how simple God wants to make it for us. Read His Word. Pray. Pray God's Word. Pray in ways that are new. Cry out to the Lord. Read the Psalms to see how David and others prayed before God. It's okay to come to the Lord and say, Lord, why is this happening to me? Because you're going to God with your problems. You're not going to the world. That's called seeking his presence. Meditate on his word. I mean, very practically, we, we hand out cards to help you with this every week. Go home and think about John 14, 6, all week long. Seek his presence in community with his people. Be here. Prioritize this. Those are the ways that God has ordained and planned for you to seek his presence. We don't get to seek God's presence on our terms. We seek God's presence on his terms, and these are his terms. Not only do we learn that it's better to be in the presence of God than in the presence of the world, but we also learn, point number two here in these, first, in these middle verses, that on the road of life, it's better to depend on the strength of God than to depend on your own strength. Ooh, this one's tough. It's better to depend on the strength of God than to depend on your own strength. You see, these next few verses speak of a journey. Look in verse 5. The author writes of the highways to Zion. In verse 6, he writes, as they go through the valley of Baca. Verse 7, again, they go from strength to strength. These middle verses speak of people who are on a journey. And I think maybe the author has in mind the Israelites who would be on a journey to the temple. See, in the Old Testament, Jews were required and instructed to make a trip to Jerusalem to worship at the temple three times a year, once for the Feast of Weeks, once for the Feast of Passover, and once for the Feast of Booths. These journeys were pilgrimages where they would go to the presence of God 
in Jerusalem. They were going to seek God's presence. So maybe perhaps we have this picture in Psalm 84 of a group of Israelites, perhaps a family, maybe a small community, traveling all the way from home to Jerusalem to worship God and to see God's presence at His temple. The road may have been difficult, it may have been dangerous, but when their strength was in God, the journey itself was a joy. You see, in verse 6, we read of the valley of Baca. Strange word there. It's because it's a transliterated Hebrew word that means weeping. So it could read, as they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. Baca sort of has this idea of a desert-like place that we might here see the imagery of a desert being turned into a place of springs of water. And you know, symbolically, I think that we can take a lot from these verses. I think, I think there's a lot that the psalmist is trying to teach us right here. He's, when your strength is in God and not in yourself, you're blessed. You're blessed so that even in the valley of life, even in the deserts of life, when it seems like there's only pain, the presence of God brings life. It brings restoration. It brings healing. And again, I think that we can look at this psalm and we can sort of understand that each and every one of us is on our own journey. And I don't think that's a, a, a strange thing to pull from this text. This is paradigmatic of all of us. That we're on this journey of life and there's going to be times that are good, there's going to be times that are bad, but we're all, as believers, we're seeking the presence of the Lord and we're headed to a final destination, not an earthly temple, but a heavenly temple. And as we're going along the way, there's going to be times where things are great and there's going to be times where we are in the valley of weeping. You see that there? I think ordinarily I would find it very easy to find like a 300-year-old story from church history to tell you about someone who is in the valley of weeping to illustrate all this, but I don't need to do that because one of the things about being a pastor here is that all of our pastors care so much about you that we want to be involved in your life, to pray for you, to bear burdens with you, to love you. But one of the unintended consequences of that is helping to bear the burdens of all and just knowing what's going on in your life. I'm so aware of the valleys of weeping that are represented here in this room. I've walked with you through those things. Terry Lee has come to your house and sat in your living room as you cried and he wept with you. Abby's come alongside of you to do that. There's been so many tangible expressions of our pastors caring for people in this congregation because that's what our life sort of is. It's a collection of highs and lows. And so many of you here today have been living this out in your life. And what better illustration of God being present with us in the valleys than some of your stories in this room. So some of y'all don't have to think about the valley of weeping as some far off imaginary thing. You're like, no, pastor, that's my address. That's where I'm at right now. Cincinnati, Ohio, the valley of weeping. That's, that's, that's the, the, the place in life that I am. You've lived there. Some of you are there now. Some of you have received the absolute hardest news that you've ever had to receive in the past weeks and months. Some of you have experienced unimaginable pain and while we all know that failure and pain, heartbreak, sickness, and even death 
are a part of life. It's a different thing when those things come knocking on your door and not someone else's. Because we live in a world that's ravaged by sin and death, we will all traverse the valley of weeping at some point in time. But the question that the psalmist poses for us is this. When you're there, where are you finding your strength? The strength to go on. The strength to continue to that holy temple. To continue until that day when the Lord returns or we finish the fight. Where's your strength for that? The psalmist wants to give us a very practical application here that if you're on this road to New Jerusalem and you are trying to operate in your strength, you're not going to make it. You won't make it there. Your strength has to be in God. You see that in our text. We can't make it there on our own. We can't do it in our own strengths. I've been in the valley of weeping at various points in my life. I've been in a hospital rooms with more questions than answers and with more tragic news than hope. But the reality is that no one else in this world can bring hope, purpose in those dark moments of life except our Lord. Who else will you cry out to when things go terribly wrong? Who else is there? There's no one. This world cannot offer you any sense of hope, and that hope doesn't spring from inside of you either, because that's not how God made you. No, when everything goes wrong, and when you enter into one of those dark nights of the soul, God is there with you. He's with you in the valley. And did you see that in our text here? Look again in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, this valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. It's no longer a desert, it's a place of springs. Where do those springs come from? Is it from you? No. The early rain covers it with pools. God sends help. God sends rain in the desert. He sends comfort in the hospital room. He sends friends in the midst of loneliness. Some of you this morning need to respond to this text of Scripture by turning this valley over to the Lord and, and finally saying, I can't do it in my strength. I have to rely on your strength. You've been trying to work your way through the valley of weeping, maybe isolating yourself, maybe trying to take it on yourself and not include other people, not relying on the church, not relying on your pastors. You've been trying to walk through this valley of weeping in your own strength, and you're here this morning, and you're exhausted, you're hurt, and you're lifeless, and you're running on empty. Brothers and sisters, we cannot move through this road of life in our strength. We must do it in the strength of another. We cannot bear the burdens of this world on our own backs. We were not designed for that. We must rely on God in the peaks and in the valleys. You see what the psalmist is teaching us here. We've seen that we should long for the presence of God more than anything else. We've seen that God is our strength in this journey. And now in our final point, we see that on this road to life, on this road of life, it's better to trust in God than anything else in this world. It's better to trust in God than anything else in this world. Very simple. The beauty of the Psalms is that these are not deep, complicated doctrinal matters, but they're things that 
when we hear them, we, we say, yes, I see that. I see it right there in the text. And now because of the way that this is written, I feel it in my heart. On the road of life, it's better to trust in God than anything else in the world. And the author reiterates this idea. Do you see it there in verse 10? This idea that there's no better place than God's presence. This time he writes, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Notice there's no limiting descriptors here. A thousand, day, and a thousand days elsewhere could mean anywhere. Pick your favorite place. The Maldives, Hawaii, the Swiss Alps, wherever you would, would consider the greatest place in the world. Think about spending a thousand days there, and that is nothing compared to a day in the presence of God. That's a huge statement to make here in the book of Psalms. The author goes even further, though, and says that he would rather be a servant in God's house, a working man in God's house, just a doorkeeper in God's house, than to dwell in the luxurious tents of the wicked. Huge statement to make. Is it true? Is that, is that really true? I think parts of us would want to fact check that, right? We'd sort of think about this, 24 hours compared to 24,000 hours. My logical brain says that, that one seems better than the other, right? You might ask yourself, Pastor, how can this be true, that one day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere? Are the courts really that much better? And amidst perhaps the doubt and disbelief in our hearts, the Bible teaches us that yes, one day in God's presence, just 24 hours, cannot compare to a thousand days elsewhere. And still, there's no question that one day with God is better than a thousand days without Him. And that's the theological truth that we learn here in these, this final section. But then the author gives us a reason for all of this. I love it when that happens. Some further logic. Do you see that? Read verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord, verse 11, this is the key. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You see it? You see the logic and the flow of these last verses? They go maybe a little bit like this. Let me paraphrase. God's presence is greater than anything this world has to offer because for the reason that God is a father who will by no means deny his children any good thing. You see it there in the text? Verses 10 and 11, that's how it's working. And let me just tell you, this is absolutely huge news. And if you've been snoozing, I'd wake up for this, because this is the good news of the gospel right here in Psalm 84. God's presence is greater than anything this world has to offer because God is a father who will by no means deny his children any good thing. And this theological truth has so many applications for our daily lives. And really, very practically speaking, I want all of you to just write this down, to commit it to memory, this little phrase here. My Father in heaven will by no means deny me any good thing. My Father in heaven will by no means deny me any good thing. This teaches us the character of our God. 
This is who he is. We need to know who our God is because it makes things so much more clear. And because we know the character of God, because we know that it's good, and because we know that God is for us, then we can trust him. You see that in verse 12? A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Verse 10. Verse 11. Because God our Father will deny us no good thing to those who walk uprightly. Right? You see it there in verse 11? For, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. A day in the Lord's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere because this is who God is. It's good to be in the courts of the Lord because the one who's there, the God who's there, is inexpressibly glorious beyond imagination and is inexpressibly good particularly to us. And if that's who is in the courts of God, then we can trust God. You don't have to worry. Did you get looked over for that promotion at work? Our Father in heaven will deny us no good thing. Did you suffer heartbreak in a relationship? Our Father in heaven will deny us no good thing. Did you get terrible news even this week? Still, our Father in heaven will deny us no good thing. There's so many ways to apply this truth right here. It helps with our obedience. Well, what if my obedience will lead me to... Fill in the blank. What if I'll lose my job by obeying? My father will deny me no good thing. You're called to obedience. What about this tragedy that's in my life? Our father will deny us no good thing. There's good through it. We can see it somewhere if we look closely enough. And that means whatever circumstance, whatever situation, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we can trust God. And I would venture to argue that in many ways, Psalm 84, verse 11, is sort of an Old Testament version of Romans 8:28. You guys know that familiar text? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's mix in Psalm 84:11 with that, right? And we know that for those who love God, 84:11, those who walk uprightly, all things work together for good. No good things does God withhold for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who walk uprightly. These verses in my mind are just intertwined. And our response to all of this is trust. Our response should be faith in God. Thomas Manton was a 1600s Puritan pastor in England, and he described faith, this idea of of faith in God, as a three-step process. It begins in your mind, a mental ascent to hear the gospel, hear what it is, hear about who this God is and to mentally grasp it. And then that mental ascent turns into a heartfelt ascent. A coming before God and laying it before him and saying, it's all yours. I respond to this message with an ascent to you. And all of that works itself out in our lives in what he calls affiance, which is a strange 1600s Puritan word for trust. Trust. So what does my faith in God look like on a daily basis? It looks like trusting God. It looks like trusting God when things don't go your way. It looks like trusting God when things do go your way and praising and glorifying him for it. It looks like even in the mundane parts of life, trusting God. 
that you're on a trajectory, that you're on your way somewhere. It looks like trusting the Lord. That's where we end in verse 12. The Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And for those of you who are parents in this room, I think you get this. You get this whole concept. These last three verses I think are so critical to Psalm 84. I think you get this. Mothers, is there anything that you wouldn't do for your children? I mean, I look and see Hannah Martindale. Sorry, Hannah, you're in eyeshot. Hannah's going to be giving birth here in a couple of months. Is there anything that you wouldn't do for that baby? You don't, you've never even seen the baby yet. You would do anything for that baby. There's nothing that mothers wouldn't do for their kids. They've invested so much, right? Caitlin has sacrificed so much for our children. What would she withhold from them? Fathers, is there anything, is there any good thing that you would not do for your children? Brett, is there anything that you would not do for Owen and Logan? Of course. Any good, we would not withhold. There's a great sense of joy when I say to my kids, let's go get ice cream. Let's go, let's go have some fun at the party. Let's go do that thing, right? If you're a parent, you get that. You understand that. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my kids. It's a joy, in fact, to do those things for our children. And my wife and I felt this very tangibly back in March of 2019 when our daughter Olivia nearly died in a hospital room as we discovered in real time that she had an extremely rare heart condition. And I remember so tangibly in that moment, as she is in the trauma room, sitting there with her heart rate nearing 300 beats a minute, praying to God, take my life. Take it away from me and give it to her. I would do anything for her. She's just five months old, it's a helpless child. I'd do anything for her. Please, Lord, exchange, exchange our lives. Take it from me and give it to her. And some of you here I know have prayed the same prayer when you've seen your child hurting. Lord, take my life and give it, give it to them. Please. See, even imperfect parents are willing to sacrifice for the good of our children. But the greatest illustration of this truth is not me, it's not you, it's our Father in heaven. Do you see that? So often we think of God as just this big guy in the sky, but he's our Father. And some of you I know didn't have good fathers. But I look at my daughter and I say, I would do anything for you. And the same is true of God our Father. This text teaches us that our Father in heaven will by no means deny us any good thing. And we see the love and the character of our Heavenly Father most clearly in His willingness to sacrifice His own Son to save us. See, Romans 8.28 is a mirror to Psalm 84.11, but Romans 8.32 is also a picture of this psalm. Do you know it? It says, He, God our Father, who did not spare His own Son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, the character of our Father is most clearly seen in the cross of Christ. In the cross of Jesus, we see a Father who will do anything to save his children. And in the same way that a parent might cry out to God in a hospital room, I'll do anything to save my child. So also our Father sees us dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, and says, I will do anything to save my children. I'll send my own son, who's perfect, to go be amongst these imperfect people to hang on a cross, to die for them. He who would not spare his own son, will he not also freely give us all things? Brother and sister, if you're here this morning, know this to be true. Our Father in heaven, our Father, our good Father in heaven, will by no means deny us any good thing. Let's pray together.